Welcome back to Leftist Labor History. My name is Nate and I'm the host and this is going to be the wrap up. Um, so let's, let's hear the intro real quick for the last time. Um, so this is, uh, this is the epilogue. Um, it's just, this episode is just going to be, you know, I, I, I've taken this up through uh, the nineties, uh, you know, up through uh, present day with the latest episode. Um, or I think, I don't know. I don't remember. It's been, it's been too long. Um, and honestly, I don't really remember what the, where the last episode ended, but basically it caught us up to present. And now this is going to be kind of a, of a wrap up and a, uh, just kind of, a you know, what's, what's the takeaways? What do we take from this long history of labor in, uh, in America and, uh, what, what could possibly, um, be the future of, of labor and, um, and the left in, in the United States. So, um, just to, uh, kind of give us some context. Well, right now, as I'm recording this, this is, uh, March 1st, 2022. And, uh, this last fall, we, uh, you may have heard in the news, you may have, uh, you may have caught wind of striketober. So last fall there was, um, really kind of a wave of, of, of strikes and, uh, uh, labor actions, um, workplaces organizing and, um, you know, uh, asking for their, uh, unions to be recognized. And a lot of people have, have turned attention to labor where labor had labor issues had gone ignored. So what do we make, uh, what do we make of uh, striketober in the current kind of movement we're in? So as, so in the last couple of months since, you know, October and November, um, Starbucks, shops have been organizing. Um, in the last couple of days, a, uh, a Starbucks store in Mesa, Oregon, in Mesa, Arizona, um, successfully, uh, voted to organize their store. So that's a big victory. So what do we make of striketober? What do we make of, uh, Starbucks stores organizing? Well, first off, I want to, I want to say, in terms of numbers, right? So just to be clear, um, 2021 was a, a rather unremarkable year in terms of the number of union petitions filed. I think there were actually slightly uh, more petitions filed in 2020. So, um, so th this this turn, this all the attention that's been turned towards labor last year, going into this year. Is, uh, is this marks a cultural shift. This is not exactly a big wave of, you know, this is not a massive wave of, of workers organizing, but it, 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 it's, but it's not nothing, right? Because, um, lots of people, um, have, have increasingly favorable views of unions. There's been a lot of, um, I mean, there's been a lot more coverage. Media has ignored this kind of stuff in the past, just outright ignored. And I think a lot of that uh, has to do with with social media. 
I think the pandemic plays a large role in that, but also, I mean, social media, people connecting to these stories of, of people who are, who are striking and being able to make their case directly to people about why they're going on strike. Right. So pandemic issues, um, being overworked, um, you know, Kellogg's workers talked about working seven hour weeks for weeks on end, no breaks, you know, one or two days breaks. And then they're coming back in for, 12 hour shifts, you know, seven days a week. And it's just, it's, uh, it's pretty grueling. Right. And so, um, there's a lot more sympathy for workers. Um, culturally the tide seems to be turning now at the same time, I don't want to, you know, we don't want to, uh, uh, overestimate that, you know, we're, we're kind of in the middle of something. And so it's kind of hard to say exactly what this all means while, while it's still happening, but it does seem to be that, um, it, it does seem to be a kind of turning point. Um, at the same time, right. Um, it, we're it, private sector, uh, labor union density is, is near an all time low. Um, there actually were, um, I, I mean, we're at like, like eight or 9% private sector, uh, uh, union density, which is extremely low, right? Comparable, but at the same time, right, this, this is comparable numbers to uh, the late 20s. So what is, you know, what, what's going to happen in the future? Well, nobody knows. Nobody can, can really tell. Um, but that's kind of where we're at. Um, it is significant that we're seeing Starbucks. Um, workers organize. The reason being is not because, I mean, there's not a particular type of, of person or, you know, person with a particular politics or ideology that works at Starbucks, right? But the nature of that role is the product of history. So when you look at, so this as, as, as a labor historian, right? So when I look at a job at uh, Starbucks, when I look at the job of the, of the barista, Starbucks barista. So uh, Starbucks represents, um, a de-skilled version of, of a coffee shop, right? It has kind of the trappings of a, of a coffee shop where you can go and you get free Wi-Fi or you can read a book and you can hang out. Um, and it kind of cultivates that ambiance, but the, but the position, the human, the, the labor provided is, has been de-skilled. So pulling a, a, a good shot of espresso is a skill that takes time and, and practice and uh, a good barista is, is, is a skilled position. Um, Starbucks has, uh, Starbucks fills up their, their, their drinks with uh, milk and sugar, right? To, to, to really mask the, the, the taste of what is not a, a good uh, shot of espresso, right? Like they're using, they're, they they don't care about pulling a good shot of espresso. Um, I'm not a coffee expert. I grew up Mormon, so I'm not a coffee expert. But this is this is this is an example of of a corporate chain that has that has taken a skilled position. I mean, all all positions are skilled, but has taken you know a a, a particular position and turned it into this kind of entry level position in order to not, um, let labor get in the way of, of their expansion and their brand. 
And so it's, it's, it's interesting to see Starbucks workers organize because that position is created in opposition to, to labor in, in, in many, in many senses of the word. So a lot of, a lot of this, um, I, I think it's worthwhile to pay attention to these kinds of de-skilled positions. Um, and, and the latest store, uh, uh, organized in Arizona, which is very much a right to work state, right? Like this is, this is, um, I mean, the, the history of, of the Sunbelt, right? If you go back to my, uh, episode about deindustrialization, Arizona is one of these states where, companies migrated to in order to, to escape labor. So what you've got is you've got organizing in all of these places where capital, you've got labor organizing in all of these places where capital has, you know, established these little bastions of, of anti, anti-labor, anti-organizing. Um, and so that's what's significant about, I mean, cause right, like three Starbucks stores across the country and these stores have like 20 people working in them, right? These are not big, by the numbers, these are not big unions, but it's worthwhile paying attention to this kind of stuff. Well, what are we going to see come out of this? Well, who knows, you know, are all Starbucks stores going to organize? Maybe is, 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 are, is the Starbucks, um, our executives, right? Is the corporation going to crack down on organizing? I mean, maybe anyway, Oh, I was going to also say, so I didn't talk about it in this, in the, I think it was the last episode, but there was a, there was a, a successful in the nineties, there was the justice for janitors campaign, which was, um, uh, SEIU and it's kind of a similar thing, right? So it's, it's kind of, you're, you're, you see organizing in, um, in positions that have been de-skilled to make labor as, as, as kind of fungible as possible. I didn't talk about it just cause I just didn't have time. I just decided to cut it. Um, and, and ultimately, I mean, it doesn't directly connect like to our, our current moment. So, but there is this kind of precedent for, um, you know, these, these, uh, low wage positions organizing successfully. Um, and in the nineties even. So anyway, so I want to, so that's kind of our current moment. That's where we're at. I want to survey the, you know, long history of labor and provide you with some takeaways. So if you watched my introduction, I talked about how I don't feel like there are a lot of takeaways Um, I don't feel like there are a lot of, you know, hard and fast lessons or cut and dry lessons to be learned, but I do think that there are some things, um, you know, the, the, they're really, the ones that I'm very confident in are are fairly obvious, (laughs) but, but might as well, you know, go ahead and uh, articulate them. Um, so I'm going to kind of start with the things that I think, that I'm very confident in that I think it'd be hard to read the history in any other way. Um, while allowing for, you know, some, some room for, for good faith disagreement, but you know, the first kind of takeaways, I think it'd be hard to reach a different conclusion, honestly. Um, and then we're going to kind of get into more like speculative stuff and I'm going to just talk at you, but, um, 
I mean, the obvious, right? The big takeaway from all of this is um, capital and labor under capitalism. These are antagonistic forces. <laughs> capital wants. So what capital wants is um, it wants complete control over labor and workers are really not in, <laughs> I mean, even if, even if, even if we wanted to, we're just not in a position to turn ourselves into robots because we're not robots. We're human beings and capital wants these units of labor that, that can be easily separated from the life of a human being as a, as a human, I have all sorts of familial community, all these social ties. I have needs that are at, at odds with the 24 seven kind of production cycle of, of, of industrial capitalism. Um, you know, like there's all of these things that get in the way of me being just a, a, a machine for the extraction of labor. And that's, and that's, that's the demand of, of, of capitalism. And it's fundamentally at odds with, with, with life. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm real, I'm trying, I'm, I'm not trying to be like polemical here, but, um, I mean, th these are the, this is the, this is, these are the battle lines, right? Capital and labor are, um, these antagonistic forces. And you look through the history and you see that at every turn. Um, now this, I mean, if you pay attention, this is obvious, but you get all sorts of, uh, you get all sorts of messaging, right. From these corporations, like, Oh, we're, we, you know, you work at a job where they're, they say we're, we're family, you know, we're on the same team. Your boss is trying to be your friend. And, it, and, and what it is, is, um, it's disguising the nature of, of the beast is, you know, the boss is not your friend. HR is not HR works for the company. Um, you know, they're trying to extract as much labor from you as cheaply as possible. And you're trying to have a good life. You're trying to climb that hierarchy of needs and, um, you know, achieve, uh, uh, self-actualization and, um, you know, have a, a, a good, healthy community and a good, healthy living environment. And so you just don't have the same goals at all. Right. Antagonistic. Um, and capital will, will, will <laughs> capital will not stop it, You know, capital will do whatever it can get away with, honestly, in order to extract labor from you. I think this is, I think this is one of the, this is an important takeaway from labor history. You see the, the extremes that capital will go to, uh, they will kill workers, right? Um, they will, it, it, they will, whether it's, through their own private armies, um, you know, their Pinkertons and their spies and their, their, uh, private security forces. Um, they will do it that way. They will employ the state they'll call in the national guard. They will call the, they would definitely call the local police and the state police. If they need to, they'll call in the, na the national guard and they will go to war. Um, if workers are willing to go to war, they will definitely show out in violent force. Um, that's, I mean, that's the kind of, those are the stakes of, of the battle. Um, so you're not on the same team because <laughs> they will kill you. They will, I mean, if they can get away with it, they, they will kill you. And, uh, legally they, they usually get away with it. Um, so this is another, this is another key point, right? Is the law in, in the United States, um, like 
the legal structure is set up to protect property. And when workers go on strike, they are that's an attack on property. The the point of of a strike is to say you can't use the means of production. We're 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 shutting that down. And the law value I mean the the access to the means of production legally is more important to the law than human life. Um so this is a bit of more of a, I mean, in that same vein, this is lower on the, in terms of confidence. I think there's a lot of room for, for kind of other opinions here. But if you look at the, I mean, again, you look at the history here, um, the workers, the greatest weapon that workers have in this struggle, in this battle is the right to strike. That's like the, that's the big thing. And when workers, uh, give that away, give that up through contracts or, through, you know, through other means, you really, really, really weaken the position of the workers. Um, so when I talked about, um, uh, I think it was in the deindustrialization episode, um, the treaty of Detroit between, uh, the big three automakers and the United Automobile Workers, UAW, it was anyway, um, they signed over they signed a five-year contract and they, they signed away their, uh, uh, their ability to go on strike. And the reason I highlighted that is it can seem like, like it, it seems like such a tempting option if you're getting, you know, a good contract, but that's kind of a key, that's kind of a turning point in the history of American labor. Um, this is the reason why industrial workers of the world historically have not signed contracts, right? So, you know, they don't want to be drawn into that game of, of legal structures and, and the kind of political, uh, you know, that, that when you get on that, in that framework and on that footing, capital has the advantage. Capital can use the law against you. Um, you know, am I saying never, ever, ever, you know, give away your right to strike? I'm not going to go that far, but I mean, it can't, it almost can't be overstated how, uh, important and how powerful striking is. Um, but again, there can be lots, I mean, there can be different, uh, interpretations. There can be different arguments, you know, for and against that kind of proposition, Okay, so kind of along uh, along those lines, right? Um, this is another takeaway. So when I looked at what Marx had, um, you know, some of what Marx had said about trade unions, he felt that they were good and 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 necessary, and he felt like that's an, that's a very um, natural and good thing for for unions to organize and and you know get what they need out of out of their job, get you know get an approximation of, of what it is, the value that they're creating. But at the same time, he saw the tendency, <clears throat> Marx saw the tendency of these trade unions to get enveloped into the political, the bourgeois political structure. And I think that's right. I think he was, you know, he, he kind of theorized that and he saw it happening in England. And, um, I think, I think that our labor history has borne that out. Um, you know, the AFL-CIO is, is the prime example where they, there was this remarkably powerful union in the middle, you know, uh, mid, mid 20th century. And 
and as it as it becomes you know this political organization effectively kind of a wing of 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 the democratic party um it's it's just become a shell of it i mean over the over the last uh you know half century it's become a shell of what it was and that's because uh you know it's 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 trying to play this it's trying to play this game where it's fundamentally at a disadvantage um right and it's completely lost i mean this is this i think there's a strong correlation there between you know the loss of 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 radicalism and its loss of power so there's i mean we've i've, I've kind of given you an, an introduction to this this process i've given i've given an introduction to you uh to this process and how it happened of how you know big labor lost so much of its power um, of course, there's, it's, it's an incredibly complex story, and I'm not trying to boil it down to one element, but the, the CIO purged radicals, and it merged with the AFL, and it, at some point along that way, right, and then you have the Treaty of Detroit in 55, um, you know, like all of these things, at some point along the way, like, labor kind of lost its, its vision to, to a certain degree, and it became this kind of... Um, you know, it's like you, you get so afraid of, of losing what you have, that you don't want to risk it in order to, to, I mean, it's kind of like, this is what we see with the democratic party of the last 30 years is like, we're going to, we're going to cling to these tiny, tiny gains, you know, and, and, and not risk actually winning the whole argument because we're afraid of, of, of losing, you know, losing the battle or whatever. I don't know. I don't have a fully formed thought about that. But the point, the only point is, is that Marx seems not to have envisioned um, a radical proletariat revolution coming by way of, of, of trade unions. And, and I think that's, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, again, I mean, there's, there's room for disagreement there. Anyway, um, so one, one takeaway, <laughs> another takeaway, and this is, uh, and this is not a very satisfying takeaway, but it is, I think, true that the history of, of United States labor is, is a very mixed bag. Um, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a microcosm of, of, um, of the United States as a whole, where you have these veins or these threads of, of, of radicalism and, um, really powerful organizing, um, you know, really great examples of, of putting these great ideals and these, you know, these great philosophies and, and, and theories into practice and at the same time, you've got, you know, you've got racism and, and sexism and xenophobia and, uh, and, you know, siding with the boss, you know, uh, uh, competing with other unions, right? Like siding with, <laughs> siding with the boss against other labor unions. Like you've got, you get and got it all. You've got the whole, the whole spectrum there. Um, I don't think that there's a lot to be gained by romanticizing any of it. I think that, especially, especially leftists, right? Like if you're, you know, if you're kind of a liberal center, liberal, whatever, 
and you want to, you know, valorize labor. I mean, that's, that's up to you, but I think as leftists, we got to be clear eyed about, um, about the shortcomings of labor organizing the past. Um, that being said, I think that there is a lot of promise in labor organizing to kind of erode a lot of these, uh, hierarchies to erode prejudice. Um, I think there's a lot of potential and a lot of promise there in starting with, Hey, we have this shared interest. We work for the same, we work, we work at the same place. We all hate our boss. Everybody hates their boss, right? Start there. Absolutely. Start there and see what solidarity feels like. Um, and then from there, you, you know, I, it's all, it's all kind of anecdotal. I did see one study about this, but, um, I think that this is a very useful and uh, valuable way for people to start to see themselves as part of um, a class and part of a, as a society and as a community and not, oh, you know, transgender people are going to harm me somehow. You know, it's like, well, no, I like I work with this trans person. They're great. We both hate our boss. So, yeah, what's the problem? Um What was my other thing? So speaking of solidarity, right? Um, <laughs> if you've seen the, you've seen the Irishman, it's a, uh, is that Pacino? I forget. It's been too long, but in the Irishman, the solidarity, the Jimmy Hoffa character. Anyway, <laughs> God, um, this is one way this is a very reductive way of looking at, uh, us labor history, but I'm just going to, I'm going to put it out there. I don't think it really like holds up that well if you, you start really digging into it. But if you look at labor history in this country as, 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 as if you look at it as a history of solidarity, I think that you can get, I think you can kind of get a lot of insights out of that. Um, in terms of what is what has been possible and what is possible, um, there are there are some real challenges to establishing class consciousness in this country, and the labor history bears that out, right? Um, but I think the solidarity is the is the is the whole game. Like that's the whole goal, and this is another thing that I think that it comes out. I'm, I'm, I may have a blind spot here. I'm, I'm open to being wrong about this. I don't think I'm wrong, but I think that it really, it, it really bears the history bears this out that if you don't, if you're not always trying to expand the circle of who you stand in solidarity with, it ultimately it works against you, right? There's, there's obviously like a very practical limit, um, you know, which is why, right? Like trade unions, craft unions are, are generally very successful in, in getting concessions from capital is because you, you have a small, you've kind of limited, um, the amount of, of people in your bargaining unit, uh, in, in craft and trade union unions, especially it's, it's a skilled, it's skilled workers that the, the company needs in the short term. Um, and so that can be a very successful 
way to organize if you're doing the kind of bread and butter organizing. But over time, the more divisions that you can seed to in your class, and I'm talking about globally, the more the more uh, divisions that you that you accept, the worse off over the long term, the worse off your your organizing is and the worse off your position will be as long as you as long as you, you know, cooperate in that establishment of a hierarchy, the boss is always going to be knocking you down a rung. So you may be able to hold on to your spot by putting others down, but eventually the not, the boss is going to put you in that same position. And that's, I feel like that's the way it goes. Um, so I, I really, I, I think it's morally and ethically, ethically right to establish solidarity across borders, across all sorts of, of uh, racial, sexual, gender, uh, ethnic divides. I think that that's really powerful, powerful in a moral and ethical sense. But I think strategically, especially if you're looking long term and especially if you really want to disrupt, um, you know, the, the pattern and the, the structure of capital, you have to always be opening that, opening that wider, um, not with, not with racists though, right? Not with hardened neo-Nazis. Um, that, I mean, do you organize with Trump voters? I mean, that's going to be, that's going to be up to, to the people. Um, but I, I mean, this is, if you've seen, you know, Richard Rorty's kind of paradox of tolerance thing where, if you are tall, if you are equally tolerant of all views, then you're going to be giving a voice to people who who want to, you know, restrict uh, uh, tolerance and in, in, in speech and so on. Um, and I think the absolute same. I mean, like if you organize with 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 a racist, with an anti-Semite, they're you're limiting the the number of people that you can organize with. Right. And that's, that's, that's kind of the, the exception, or I mean, that's the paradox there is like, if you organize with actively hateful people who are going to keep other people out, that that's, that's, that's a no go. You can't do that. Right. Um, so, I mean, you're, you have to organize with people who are, who are going to be open, um, who at least, who at least will entertain the idea of, 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 of pushing that, you know, the, the borders of solidarity, um, in my opinion, anyway. So now I'm going to get a little bit more, uh, speculative. I'm going to kind of give you my interpretation on things. So I think if you look at the United States, um, it's kind of uniquely, uh, favorable to capital, which is to say, you know, it's, it's kind of uniquely, um, hard on, on workers, um, compared to other, uh, colonial powers, um, the United States is, uh, is, is very, <laughs> really hard on it, on its workers. Um, and yet the, the, the political structure in this country is, is very, uh, is very rigid. I think it's kind of an interesting, um, I think it's an interesting, kind of puzzle to, to piece out. So my interpretation of this is, uh, you know, in, in terms of this very resilient, uh, political structure, 
in the face of, of extreme inequality? Well, I think it really goes back to, you know, the very beginnings of British North America. You know, in that first episode, I kind of talked about how, um, you know, these British colonies survived because they were shipping, um, they're shipping, you know, you know, paupers. They're British people who were living on the streets couldn't make a living in, in England, were signing up to, I mean, they're risking their lives, right? They could have died at sea. Uh, the death rate in the, in the early uh, British colonies uh, was extremely high. I mean, whether or not they knew that, I mean, who knows? But these were desperate people, and they were going in the hopes that they might, you know, make a living and actually get a piece of land. And this was the bargain. In the first, you know, few decades of British uh, North America, um, the colonies were, were dying. Everyone was dropping like flies. They needed warm bodies. And so part of the bargain was, oh yeah, we'll make these promises of, um, you know, to these indentured servants, knowing that a lot of them are going to die and they're not going to have to really like, they're just going to get free labor for, you know, before the, 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 the time these people die. And if they do make it through their indenture, um, you know, they're, they're in pretty good shape. Um, and some of them end up, ended up owning land, which was impossible in their position in England. So when we talk about, um, right, the, when we talk about the American dream and this, this idea of a, of a land of opportunity, a lot of that is, a lot of that is propaganda. Like do not, don't, don't buy, don't buy into it. But I would say have a healthy respect for that idea because a lot of people that's that's come true for a lot of people for an individual um the system that create that, that you know allowed that one person to get a piece of land own property right to really like jump make a jump in class from street urchin to petty bourgeois like that's a really powerful thing. And that's part of our national Im imagination. And there is, there's a, there is a, a little bit of, of truth in that, in that mythology. Um, as time has gone on, right? Like that's, that has become, uh, harder and harder to, to get, but everybody in this country really thinks like, Oh, I could be the next Bill Gates. I could be the next Zuckerberg or whatever. Um, I mean, the reality, right, is compared, again, you compared, compare our country to other countries in the global north, um, and our social mobility is lower. People think it's higher, but it's really not. I mean, even compared to like these Nordic, uh, you know, social democratic states, um, social mobility, social mobility is higher at these, these places with a, with a, social safety net the welfare state kind of makes sense if you think about it but we have this idea that um you know we have this idea of of, of like hardship and overcoming your obstacles and that's that's kind of this psychological um you know really indoctrination that's kind of part and parcel of the american dream um but this this thing has this idea is really powerful. And then another thing that's really powerful about it is it is, um, it's been tied up 
for the, the entire history of this country has been tied up in ideas of white supremacy and settler colonialism. Um, but the, but Republican, I mean, Trump as, as, as explicitly racist and xenophobic and, and homophobic as he was, he saw, uh, Latinx people and black people, um, vote for him, right? This isn't, this is a message that, uh, that can actually appeal to people who want to better their station in life. Um, and I, and, and like, we <laughs> believe me, I got every crit criticism in the world of this idea, but it's a, it's still a powerful idea and it's a powerful sales pitch. And I think that as, as leftists in the U S I think we have to have a healthy re respect for this idea. I'm not saying to uh, to humor it or to you know, go easy on it, but understand this is this is what keeps our our, our um, political order in, in power. Honestly, um, I say that because I so going back to labor history. This is um, in one of the episodes. I think it was the the deindustrialization episode. I read this quote from Melvin Dubovsky from his conclusion in his history of the industrial workers of the world. And he's pointing out the irony that, um, that organized labor has its origins in radical militancy and what it was that really kind of like that, that, that de-radicalized big labor was not, was not violent force, but, the fact that like a lot of these workers got a house and a car, um, you know, they made that jump, um, to, you know, they, 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 they themselves as individuals found themselves in a better place than, than their parents had been. Right. So generationally they moved up that was made possible by big labor, but it made people less committed to the cause of workers. Right. So, and I, I kind of discussed that a little bit critically when I, when I read that quote before, um, but I think it really hits on an irony in the trajectory of, of, of this country, of the 20th century United States. Um, right. And, and, and the irony there, I mean, to kind of build off of that is that it's, this is, this is labor. This is big labor saving capital from itself. Right. It's the idea of, of, of the new deal as, as a last ditch effort to keep people, to keep, um, people from just overthrowing the whole thing. And, um, this is something that the United States is very successful at is all of our institution culturally and institutionally, this country is geared toward getting that one individual as long as he or she or they, but usually he, as long as they're willing to leave everybody else behind, they can move up the ladder. That's what, that's what the whole, that's kind of the whole game. Does capital want people to move up the ladder? No, it doesn't. The capital wants everybody on the, on the bottom, but there are all these institutions and, um, organized labor paradoxically is one of these uh, institutions that keep some semblance of, of, uh, social mobility alive. So let me, let me be clear about what I mean 
by that. So if if we accept the premise that um, labor increases social mobility and therefore de-radicalizes the proletariat, does that mean that we should not um, organize labor? No, I don't mean that at all. And I also don't. Okay, so let me let me be clear. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think that um, I do think that improving your material station in life uh, makes these things less urgent. But at the same time, it frees people up to organize and to imagine a better world and to agitate for a better world. And I hold up the, the 60s and 70s, as imperfect as, as that kind of radicalism was in, the, in like the hippie movement, as imperfect as that was, you when you get people who have free time, who have leisure, you get people who start to care about, like you're not going to get a revolution by chaining somebody to a, to a, a machine for 80 hours a week. You might get the will, but if, practically, how do you do that? How do you organize people who work three jobs? It's very difficult. So I, I'm, I'm trying to be as clear as possible here because I think that this can go a lot of different ways. I think that the benefits of labor organizing, um, you know, I, okay, I don't see a lot of radical militancy. I don't think, I don't think the revolution in the United States is going to come from organized labor. Regardless, I am in favor of people getting their material needs and immediate needs met. And if that comes through labor or if that comes through labor organizing, then that in itself is good. Like that's an intrinsic good. Marx said as much, right? Um, so I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not in, <laughs> I'm not an accelerationist. Um, good Lord, I, I can't stress enough that I am not an accelerationist. Um, and again, one of, and it, I mean, the big reason there is I think that if, if we push this country to a breaking point, it's going to go fascist before it goes socialist. Convince me otherwise, right? Like, I, like show me, show your work if you think that there's going to be a, a proletariat revolution from some future crisis. And I will point you to every crisis of my lifetime, in which case people have, have pitched rightward. I think that labor organizing is a, is a fantastic way and an invaluable way to get people's needs met. Um, it also increases uh, consumption for things that are very bad for our climate. And that is, I don't know how to really square that. Don't really, don't, don't push me on that. I don't know how to answer you, honestly. I don't know how that's going to work, but I think ultimately long-term, I think you got to get people, you can't just have a bunch of people in desperate circumstances because yeah, they might, they might pick up weapons and go to war against their boss. They might break hard right, honestly. And we're currently in the, in a fourth resurgence of uh, explicit white nationalism, and that's not that's not something that you want to mess around with. Um, I do not believe in in pushing uh, society to the breaking point. So, I think labor organizing is 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 more or less an intrinsic good for those reasons, and I think that it's a really good. Um, 
valuable way for people to practice solidarity. I think it can be, I mean, like organized labor was, was, was a haven for communists and, and anarchists and other radicals in the, in the first 20th century. And it can be that again. Right. Um, but anyway, but I mean, there is kind of, there is that, that, that paradox there. There is that irony at work where, yeah, I mean, if you do, um, I mean, soften the contradictions of capital, like you may, be, I, I just, I just really, I just don't really see any benefit from, from intentionally, uh, creating a crisis in society especially in the, in the United States, we're so fascistic by nature and by culture already. Like that's just really, really playing with fire. Um, anyway, so yeah, that, I mean, also that being said, right. I don't see, I don't see a, a, a socialist revolution happening in the United States in my lifetime. I, I do not see it. If you want to support global socialism, you support socialism in the places where it already exists, which is not the United States. And I think the way to do that is, um, opposing, uh, uh, us imperialism, opposing the state department and CIA and, uh, the, the department of, of defense. I mean, really like you look at, you look at the, you know, cold war up into present, the biggest, uh, the biggest deterrent to social or to global socialism is not, um, any kind of intrinsic flaw in socialism. It's, it's the CIA and the state department, um, with, I mean, I guess with the, the, the military in Vietnam serving as kind of the ultimate example of like what we will do to socialist governments. If it comes to that, like if we are not able to harness, you know, right-wing paramilitaries, we will drop, an unprecedented amount of bombs on your country and on your neighboring countries, uh, until you acquiesce. Right. Um, so I don't really see a lot of, I don't see a lot of potential for revolutionary activity in the United States. I don't see, uh, an armed conflict breaking out soon, very soon. Um, unless it's kind of like anti-fascist, like, you know, beating back the brown shirts in your community, which is shockingly, um, you know, that's very frighteningly possible in the near term. Um, so what do we do? So I guess I'll kind of leave you with this analogy and this is just my own personal feeling, take it or leave it. Um, you know, what do we do as, as people in the United States or in, you know, or from wherever you're, you're watching, which is, you know, an English speaking or, you know, if you speak English and you're tuned into the labor history of the United States, um, and you're curious about what, what to do or what will happen. Um, here's my, here's my two cents. Here's my, here's my theory. Here's my philosophy. So, um, I, I, I like the outdoors. I like hiking. I like camping. Um, pine trees are pretty, pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> Obviously there's a lot of pine trees around, but, but the, here's the thing. Here's the cool thing about pine trees is, um, they are very well adapted to, to, um, to shallow rocky soil. They can grow right on top of big boulders. 
Um, they have shallow roots, which kind of, you know, get into whatever topsoil is available to, to get their nutrients. Um, and they're adapted to fire. Here's the thing is, as United States leftists, I think we, I think here's my analogy. I think we should be adapted to fire. We should be adapted to, um, to rocky inhospitable inhospitable soil. And we should be used to, to purges coming through and, and, and cleaning out our organizations. I think that's something we can almost kind of count on with regularity, just as like in the Rocky mountains, wildfires happen with regularity and pine forests have adapted to this. Um, um, specifically there's, there's different, uh, species of pine. There's only a few that, that have this kind of cone, but, uh, certain species like the lodgepole pine have this, uh, serotonous, I think that's how you say it, have these serotonous cones and the cones are sealed shut with a resin until a, a wildfire comes through and melts that resin and the cones kind of, uh, expand and drop their seeds into all that. And like once the fire, you know, passes through, drops the seeds into that ash. And so the first thing that comes up eventually over time, like different, you know, seeds from other, uh, other plants and other species will come in and start to populate that. But the first thing that comes up are, are those pine trees. Because as soon as, as soon as, uh, that fire goes through, um, they're already right there. Um, and I think that that is, I think that's kind of a cool thing. I, I, I think, you know, all of the natural adaptations of, of the natural world are, are very cool. I'm, I'm a humanities guy who doesn't really understand it very much, but I think that, I think the analogy there, I think if, if you want to draw a lesson from that, it's to make your seed. And again, if you look at a big, huge, giant pine tree, that's, you know, hundred feet tall, the seeds are, are, are really, really very small. Like the kernel in that seed is tiny. This is why pine nuts are, um, are so expensive. It's because they're very well protected and they're very small relative to the, the thing that they're coming from. And so I think that you, I think we should make our seeds, you know, if nothing else, uh, we make our seeds, you know, as, as, as good as they can possibly be and we protect them. And, um, and you know, like to bring it back to Marx or to Gramsci, right? Like Marx's idea of social reproduction, Gramscian idea of hegemony. We, we are always internalizing the logic of capitalism just by, just by existing. Any, every, I mean, practically everything we read and, and everything, you know, you go into work and, and the, the logic of capitalism is always just in our face and we can't help but internalize it. Right. But if we do nothing else, but, but, um, revise that logic and, and to become more of a uh, community focused and to practice solidarity and to, um, you know, support, support, um, workers across the globe. Um, you just improve your seed and keep your seed protected. And when the time comes, then you're going to have, then the next generation is going to be stronger. Um, so that's, that's my analogy. 
it's corny. Um, and I wish I had, I can't find my <laughs> pine cone. Um, I think I might've thrown it out. I was going to like kind of use it as an object lesson anyway. Oh, so one last thing. Um, um, so the last thing it shows as a, as kind of a final sign off, uh, this is the last episode of this series that I'm going to do. I may very well just retire from, from doing this kind of stuff. I don't particularly, uh, love talking at a, at a camera and a microphone. Um, but if there's a reason to, uh, you know, make a new episode, I'm, I'm all about it. So if, you know, if you've got, if you've got questions, if you've got feedback, um, if you're curious about something, you want me to do a deeper dive on a topic, um, I'm definitely open to that. I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on any particular topic, but, um, you know, I have, I've, I've studied some stuff and I can study more, but, uh, or, you know, if there's, if you, if you are an expert and you want to talk to me about something and, and, you know, add context, add information, or, you know, kind of correct the record on something that you think I've, uh, misinterpreted or gotten wrong, then I'm absolutely open to that. Um, get in touch with me comment on, on the YouTube, uh, comments. Um, yeah. I mean, if I, if I do see a good reason to, to make it another one of these then I will, but if you, if you have feedback, I'm, I'm definitely open to that. Um, anyway, thanks for, uh, checking out this series. Hopefully you, you have checked out the entire series. Um, I did it because I think it's valuable. So hopefully you agree. And uh, I appreciate um, appreciate you um, coming around. This has been uh, Leftist Labor History. And uh, I am signing off.